We are continuing in the book of Luke this morning in our scripture reading, in our exposition as well. Luke uh, chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. I invite you to just follow along on the board as I read aloud. And a ruler questioned Jesus saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, who then can be saved? And he said, These, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord, blessed are you, our Lord and great God. Our eternal God, you are blessed in times past and yet even today. Lord, you have spoken in the past and your people have been guided through all kinds of wilderness and supported in all kinds of exiles and tribulations. And so, Father, we, we ask you to speak to us today in the midst of our own peculiar confusions. Speak to us through your law and give us a sense of order and direction. Speak to us through your gospel. Transform us by your grace and renew us in hope. For yours is the future, even more than the past. Father, we lift these confessions and these requests up to you, asking you once again to remove me aside so that your people may hear your word clearly, that we may understand and that we may know you and have a greater will to obey you than what we had when we came, a higher view to worship you than what we had when we came and a deeper love for you, garnered by a deeper dependence of you than what we had when we came. Lord, we ask all of this. We ask you to bless Brother Stephan as he is away from us today, sharing your word with um, with Fellowship Baptist Church, Lord, may you do the same for him. And may you cause us to be greater in love with you. It is in your name we ask, amen. Man, you may be seated. And while you are being seated, I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. We are continuing kind of a, just a little mini-series that we started last week. Uh, two weeks talking about the biblical foundations of ministry. These are the values that define biblical ministry. These are the defining principles. And, and one of the things I like about Luke chapter 18 is that they, we see all of them in action in the ministry of Christ. 
And we see how he incorporated them uh, in his ministry, especially in his uh, ministry to this rich young ruler. Now, once again, why do we call him the rich young ruler? Because one gospel calls him young. Uh, one gospel, our gospel this morning, calls him a ruler. And all of the gospels that record this particular uh, circumstance in Christ's life refer to him as rich. And so we refer to him as the rich young ruler. And in Christ's ministry to this young man, like I said, uh, quite frankly, if Christ were to attend most of your evangelical seminary uh, evangelism classes today, he would probably get an F based on this interaction. Uh, this is not the normal kind of interaction. Someone walks up to you and says, hey, what do I need to do to be saved? I mean, that's like, that's like the ultimate setup. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's what we want, right? And we would immediately run into the Roman road. We would immediately go to the faith outline. We would immediately do two ways to live, whatever it is. But we saw that Jesus didn't do any of those things. And the reason why is because we see these four foundations of biblical ministry at work. And if you recall, I mentioned this last week that I am now in my ninth year at Calvary Baptist Church. And the first sermon series I did was on these four biblical pillars these four foundations, uh, four sermons. Each one got its own sermon. It was a four-week-long series. And so, uh, and so we're just kind of going back and reviewing them again because I know that every single one of you remember sermons that I preached nine years ago. Amen, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> just uh, fishing for compliments there. So I do that sometimes if I fish for a compliment. Just give me an amen and I'm like a puppy. I'll, you know, just... Throw me a bone every now and then, so. <laughs> so last week, we talked about uh, the first two, and, and I knew, especially with baptisms last week and membership business today, I knew I wouldn't be able to do all four of them in one sermon, so uh, we divided them up into two. Last week, we talked about the very first and most crucial, I believe, foundation, pillar of biblical ministry, guiding principle that we must have is a high view of God. If you do not have a high view of God, then you will inevitably have a high view of man. You will have a high view, more specifically, a specific man, yourself, or woman, women, you're not exempt. And so uh, if you don't have a high view of God, you will inevitably have a high view of people or yourself. We talked about uh, this morning in my Sunday school class, talking about the discipline of the church gathering and we were talking about how it is, you know, we come together on God's time. It's not at our convenience per se, but it is meant to be a discipline that is cultivated, that we gather with God's people on his time and his way because we are submissive to the Lord. We are not uh, telling the Lord how we want things done. And so that's what worship is all about. It is submitting to the lordship of Christ, not asking him to submit to our lordship. So, so that's number one, a high view of God. Number two, we must have a high view of scripture and one necessarily goes with the other. If you have a high view of God, you're going to have a high view of scripture. This is God's word to us. Fellas, do you remember? Maybe you guys were in, who were in the military and you were off serving uh, and you were got a letter from your sweetheart. 
Did, did you just read it once and then just kind of throw it away? How many of you to this day still got letters that you and your sweetheart wrote to each other? Okay, well, that application just totally failed. But, <laughs> but the point is, is that when someone is important to you, apparently, maybe not, I don't know, but when someone is important to you, you keep what they write you, right? How many of you can still, now we got cell phones today, how many, but how many of you still remember your loved one's phone number back from when you were dating? Few people, okay, few more, all right. Today it's email, right? So I remember what Roxanne's email address was, uh, but I don't know any of your phone numbers, by the way. If I ever lose my cell phone, I'm in trouble, so. But, uh, but yeah, a high view of Scripture. Because we have a high view of God, it is inevitably gonna lead to a high view of Scripture. That is why we preach the Word of God the way we do here. That's why we give precedence to the Word of God, because we have a high view of Scripture. We have a high view. We want you to understand it. We want, you to, we want to explain it to you so that you will grow to love it. And through it, you will grow to love God even more. Uh, my, my goal for every one of you when you leave here today is that you will have a higher view of God when you leave than what you had when you came. And if that's true, then I've been successful. If that's not true, then maybe there's something I need to examine. And so I want you to have a high view of God through our high view of scripture. But we're just gonna dive right into number three this morning. And number three, and again, this is, all of this is related. One inevitably leads to the other. A high view of God leads to a high view of scripture, which will inevitably lead to an accurate view of humanity. An accurate view of humanity. And so where am I getting this from? Well, look at the rich young ruler's response. You remember, Jesus could have said anything here. This is part and partial to where we're getting our high view of scripture because Jesus could have said anything. He is God. And so by virtue of anything he said would have been the word of God. And yet what does he do? He quotes scripture. He explains the scripture and he quotes the commandments. And what is the rich young ruler's response? Look at verse 21. And the rich young ruler, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. He had a pretty high view of himself, didn't he? Pretty high view of himself. I have never sinned. And when I have sinned, I followed all the rules to make it better. I don't think he's actually claiming sinless perfection here. I think what he's claiming is that he has kept the law perfectly and that he's done all the requirements, he's done all the ceremonial things, he's done all of that. So if anyone should have a high view of himself, it should be this guy, right? I mean, if anyone deserves it, it should be this guy. And yet Jesus is gonna say something that's going to rock his world. And quite frankly, it rocks a lot of people's worlds today. Boy, if cultist love, verses 18 through 20, where it seems like Jesus is somewhat separating himself from the Father, cultists love that verse. Man, if cultists love that verse, the, the theological liberals today and the social justice crowd, they love these verses that are coming. Because Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, 
and come follow me. Now, funny, the social justice crowd kind of leaves that last part out. They just say, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But what is Jesus saying here? Why in the world does he tell him to sell everything that he has? It seems like Jesus is telling him that the way to eternal life is to become destitute by giving everything you have away to someone else. But to understand what Jesus is doing, we have to understand, take a closer look at the man's response. Understand what Jesus is actually challenging this man to do. And I think you're gonna see that there's something here for all of us to examine in our own hearts. What's happening here? Well, let's take a closer look about this man's response because we're gonna see a couple things about humanity in general and more specifically, we're gonna see a few things about us. And that is number one, we need to recognize our sinfulness. We need to recognize our sinfulness. Look what he says. He, in response to Jesus, quoting, quoting him all the commands, the young ruler tells him in verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Here's a cookie. Now, to us, that sounds like an incredibly arrogant statement, right? It really does. But that's like someone saying today that they're not a sinner or that they have never even sinned. I actually met someone who told me uh, he was a pastor of another denomination who said that he has not sinned in 27 years. Well, you're all that in a bag of chips, aren't you? And so 27 years I have not sinned. By the way, he's calling God a liar when he says that. I don't think this ruler is, is saying that. I don't think this ruler is being argumentative. In fact, this, in the normal Jewish way of thinking at the time, this answer is actually very plausible. You see, Jewish boys were understood to come of age when they were around 12 or 13 years old. It was their bar mitzvah, which means they were a son of the commandment at that time. And at this time, he is legally and religiously mature, and he is probably everything a Jewish boy should have been in Jesus' day, and maybe even more. You see, because if he was, and, and, we're, and we're speculating here now, so, but if he was, if by ruler we mean that he was a synagogue leader, he was a, he was a ruler of the synagogue, then he is in charge of keeping the physical synagogue in shape. He's in charge of keeping it clean, maintaining it. Not only this, he would have been in charge of securing the weekly teachers, the weekly rabbis, he would be in charge of selecting them, a lot like when I'm gone and I ask someone to preach in my place. This was his full-time job. That's what he did. He would select the rabbis to come in. He would have had contact with most of the major rabbis and most of the major schools throughout the entire nation of Israel to accomplish this. He would have had access to them. He kept the Torah scrolls and readied them for reading. He would have also placed them in front of the rabbi to read and teach every Sabbath. And given his incredible wealth at such a young age, he probably inherited this role from his father. This was an inherited role often. 
And so he likely spent his childhood learning how to perform his, this job. He probably spent his entire childhood in the synagogue learning these things. Imagine he grew up listening to the conversations that his dad would have had with visiting rabbis as they arrived on Friday morning. He likely sat at the table and learned from them, listening to their conversations and adapting what the things that they say for his entire life. So if anyone can make the claim that I've kept all these commands from my youth, I believe this man could honestly make that claim if indeed he was a synagogue ruler. Which that kind of begs a question, doesn't it? Why did he come to Jesus? If he's kept all these things from his youth, then why ask this question? Why did he need to ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Was he only seeking self-affirmation? Like when someone asks a question, not because they want to learn the answer, but because they think they already know it and they're just looking for someone to agree with them. Maybe that's what he's doing. But I can't help but to wonder if there's something else here. If you look in uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, Matthew includes a different question. He says, the young man says, all these things I've kept from my youth, what am I still lacking? It's almost as if there is a unrest in this man's soul. That yes, I've kept all the commandments to perfection, Yes, I have been from my youth a child of the synagogue. But there's something that is not at peace in my soul. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've done all these things, Jesus. What else am I lacking? Why can't I find peace? I've done that. He didn't recognize for all his outward conformity to external and cultural commands, it had blinded him to the darkness of his own depravity. It had blinded him. He didn't recognize his sinfulness. He thought because he was so uh, conformed to the outward expectations of the synagogue that it had blinded him to the inward reality of his sinfulness. And by the way, we can do that in church, can't we? Every time the pre- if the preacher paints the walls, we line the pews and watch him do it. Every time the door's open, we're here. What do you mean I'm still a sinner? What do you mean that my heart's not right? I've done, 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 done. What do you mean? Sometimes all that external conformity is covering up a greater unrest in the soul. That there is something quite not right. Jesus knew this young man's heart. He knew that it was keeping him from coming to God. He didn't recognize his sin because, that there, because there was something in his heart that he loved more than God. He loved more than Christ. He, there was something that he wanted to hang on to more than he wanted to grasp onto eternity. There was something in this world that he loved more than God. Which tells us the second thing we need to have in our accurate view of humanity. We need to recognize our self-righteousness like this man had. But we also need to recognize idolatry in our hearts. We need to recognize idolatry in our hearts. 
Jesus tells them, here's what you're missing. Here's what's wrong. Here's why, here's what's lacking. And he tells him to give up everything you have. Sell it. And don't just put it in high value market accounts. Don't just put it in high yield interest accounts. Give it away. Be done with it. Get rid of it. Don't just liquidize it. Let go of the grip that your riches that you hold dear and place your hope in what is eternal. And how do you access eternal riches? Jesus says, come follow me. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's what Jesus tells this man. And I dare say every evangelist in the country would mark Jesus down as a heretic here. What do you mean give it away? What do you mean let it go? This is not out of the ordinary for other things that Jesus said. In fact, this is simply a specific application of some broader principles that he says. Luke 9, 23, for example. He says here, and Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Beloved, a cross is not a gold pendant on a chain. It is an old rugged thing that people die on. You must deny yourself and follow Christ. He says in the very next verse, in verse 24, that whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. This man wanted to save his wealth. And in the process, he lost eternal life. There was something he loved here more in God. There was something he loved here more than the prospect of eternal life. There was, a, there was a personal kingdom that he longed for here more than he longed for the kingdom of heaven. And it was his own checkbook. It was his own wealth. Beloved, this is an accurate view of humanity. This is an accurate view that when we are coming to people and sharing the gospel with them, we need to understand that there is an inherent self-righteousness and there is an inherent idolatry in their hearts. Every single one of us come from this background. Every single one of us are fighting this every day of our lives. Some days with greater success than others but always in a war. The war of sanctification is over this, whether we are self-righteous or hold on to Christ's righteousness and whether we are worshiping God or whether we are worshiping something else in our lives. That is the fight of our lives. That is spiritual warfare. That is everything that we're fighting for to become like Christ. And every person that we approach and share the gospel with them, understand your enemy is not that person. Your enemy, you are not fighting flesh and blood. You are fighting the things that are holding their heart and keeping them from God. Don't get mad at a person. Don't be mad at the culture. I'm getting ahead of myself. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemies are those things. And beloved, 
flogging ourselves and punishing ourselves and coming up with more rules and regulations are not going to save us from our self-righteousness and from our idolatry. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. That's why Jesus answers the way he does. There is no social agenda here. There is no no hint of communism here or socialism. This is the gospel. This is the message that those who would follow Christ must die to self and follow him. A.W. Tozer said the problem with today's gospel is that it enables the sinner, it doesn't kill him. If you are prideful, it says, come boast in Christ. If you are a reveler, it says, come party in Christ. If you are a, if you are whatever, it says, come do that in Christ. The gospel was not given to us to sanctify sin, to make us greater sinners. The gospel was given to slay the sinner at the cross of Calvary to kill us so that then Christ can come and live in us. The cross is given like like sheep. We are led to the slaughter every day so that Christ may reign in our hearts. I have been crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Oh, sinner, that we may die. Oh, sinner, that we may lose our life so that we will save it in Christ that we may take ourselves down to the most humbling place of our life, that we may take ourselves so far down that the only hope is that Christ will lift us up. And if you will do that, he will. This man had an idol in his life. For someone who thought he was keeping all the commands, he sure was breaking the first one. I have no other gods before him. This is the accurate view of humanity. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine says, the heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We understand that our hearts, the hearts of humanity are deceitful, desperately wicked. We do not even understand the secret sin and idolatries that are lurking in our own hearts. You ever do something and then ask yourself, why did I do that? Right? You've experienced this. Even our own hearts are deceive us, just like this man's was. Every person that we talk to in some way or another is self-deceived. And only Christ. It says, Proverbs chapter 20, verse five says, the purpose of a man's heart is like deep water but a man of understanding draws it out and that's what Jesus is doing for this rich young ruler. He is exposing his heart like a skilled surgeon. We use the scriptures to diagnose the true trouble of humanity and it is sin. This man wanted wealth more than he wanted Christ and he walked away, rejected, rejecting Christ and rejected by Christ. This leads us to the final point. Why did Jesus let the man walk away? Why did Jesus let this man walk away? 
I mean, in church today, are we not supposed to do everything in our power? Are we not supposed to entertain? Are we not supposed to do uh, special effects? Are we not to do all of this so that we can be seeker sensitive? Are we, not, are we not to do everything we can to keep people from leaving? I mean, Jesus let this man walk away. If he were in a church growth conference, he would fail. This is not how you grow churches. But you see, Jesus let him walk away because he had an accurate view of the purpose of the church. An accurate view of the purpose of the church. And very quick, understand there's a, there, there's a popular evangelical today and up until a few years ago, he was the most popular evangelical. I don't think he is anymore. But he was quoted as saying that if you give me the right circumstances, I can lead anyone to Christ. Really? He was one of the movers and shakers of the church growth movement. He was one of the founders of the seeker-sensitive movement. And this statement was very reflective of his theology. You give me the right circumstances, I can lead anybody to Christ. Well, apparently he's better at evangelism than Jesus was. Who, by the way, arguably had control of the circumstances here by virtue of his omniscience, by virtue of his all-powerfulness. He had control over the circumstances and yet the man still walked away and Jesus led him. He watched him walk away. And I think we see something here in Jesus that number one, he had compassion. And as a church, we need to have compassion. Understand, looking at him in Mark 20, 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Beloved, don't get mad at the culture for being the culture. Don't get mad. Our, our entire culture today believes that the church is mad at them. Don't get mad at them. They're just doing what sinners do. We should expect that. We understand that because we understand, listen, I may not struggle with your particular sin, no, but I understand the struggles of my heart all too well. I was counseling a man one time who was uh, struggling with alcohol and he says, Randy, you don't know what this is like because you've never had trouble with alcohol. And I said, you know, you're exactly right but put a dozen donuts in front of me and watch what happens. I may not understand your particular struggle, but beloved, we've all got our demons. I may not understand your particular sin, but we understand the struggle with sin all too well, do we not? And so we have compassion. We don't get mad at sinners for being sinners. We love them. I imagine this Young rulers turning away broke Jesus' heart. In fact, I don't imagine it. I know it. Why? Because Ezekiel 33, he says, as, the, as I live, declares Yahweh God, Adonai Yahweh, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. And this young man turned. This young man turned away from Christ. This young man, he stayed in his wickedness and it broke. Jesus took no pleasure in that. 
So why does the church take this morbid pleasure of announcing that the world is going to hell? Why does that not break our hearts? Why does that not, why does that not grip us? Control us? Jesus didn't take any kind of morbid pleasure from talking about the everlasting punishment that awaited this man. In fact, I imagine he must have held back tears as he watched him walk away. Look at how he mourned over the entire city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. I don't have it on the board, but just listen to what he said. Listen to his voice. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not and how he is still mourning today over the loss of sinners. Even you who are sitting here this morning, week after week, wondering about and thinking about all the temporal things of the world while the battle for all eternity is being waged over your soul. How your Savior mourns over you. How your Savior would gather you under the mighty protection of his wings. But week after week, you are unwilling but you would rather rest in your own, your own self-righteousness and gain whatever temporary pleasure you can from your own idolatry. Week after week, the Savior is calling and week after week, he mourns as you walk out of here yet another time with a wasted opportunity to come to your Savior. How he must be mourning over you now. How he must be crying over you now. But one thing he doesn't do is he doesn't change his message. And yes, church, we must have compassion, but we must also be faithful to the message of Christ. And here's what he says. It says, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't back down from the message. In fact, <laughs> evangelicals do. <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of attempts to try to soften what Jesus says here. Some people says it, it's referring to a certain kind of rope that was hard to control a camel. Uh, some, a lot of people will say it refers to a gate, like a certain gate, a small gate in Jerusalem that, uh, that it was hard to get your camels through. All of that misses the point. What kind of needle is Jesus talking about? He's talking about a sewing needle. I've got one right here. Got one right here. Can you guys even see it? Well, you can't see this one because I don't actually have one. But, <laughs> but the point is, I meant to get one and I forgot. But the point is, is that if I were holding one up here, you wouldn't be able to see it unless you just happened to catch a glint from the light, Right? You can't see that. And Jesus says it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. I have a hard enough time getting thread through the needle. I had to sew a button onto one of my jackets a while back. That, that mug took me an hour, a button. You ladies are like, really, seriously? But yeah, it did, because I, I did not have the coordination to get it through the button, to get it through the eye of the needle. 
And Jesus said, it's easier to get a camel through that than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. Let me ask you a question. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that it's impossible for a rich man to go enter the kingdom of God? Is that what he's saying? It's impossible for a rich man to be saved? Is that what he's saying? Are you ready? Yes. That's exactly what he's saying. That it is more difficult for a rich man to go to heaven than it is to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. That is exactly what Jesus is saying. And that is our message. It's impossible. Why? Because you're rich. You know, by most of the world's standards, all of us in here are rich. Is it because he's rich? Well, in this case, yes, because this man just happened to be rich. But it's impossible for a rich man. It's impossible for a poor man. It's impossible for a tall man. It's impossible for a short man. It's impossible for a good man. It's impossible for a bad man. And yes, by the way, it's also impossible for a woman also. If you are trying to get to heaven this morning, you need to understand that it is impossible. And if you're trying to get to heaven this morning, you need to know that you have absolutely no hope. You can't do that. You can't worship your way to heaven. You can't be good your way to heaven. You can't get baptized your way to heaven. You can't do anything that will help you go to heaven. Nothing. Zilch. It is impossible. Does that surprise you? Well, you're not alone because it surprised the disciples. They heard this and they said, then who then can be saved? And Jesus says in verse 27, and this is what we need to hear this morning. Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. You see, this is the purpose of the church. This is the message we bring to the world, that it is impossible for you to go to heaven. It, 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 it doesn't matter what you do, whether you, we're not here to promote politics. We're not here to promote politicians, one economic theory over another. We're not here to promote any, anything other than the Christ crucified. Because every other means by which people try to be righteous will fail. It is impossible for any man or woman to go to heaven. But what is impossible for you has been made possible by God through Jesus Christ. And that is the message we preach. We preach Christ. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here to give you pop psychology. We're not here to do any of that. We are here to preach Christ so that you may be saved. We preach Christ so that each person may be fully mature in this church to know the faith, live the faith, and share the faith. And we don't back down from preaching Christ. So beloved, are you here this morning and you don't know Christ? Understand that Christ is mourning over your soul. He wants you to come. 
But you need to understand that all those things that you are doing to try to earn your righteousness, all those things you're doing that's trying to earn your way to heaven is going to get you nowhere. Only the cross of Christ can save you. And what is impossible for you has been made possible through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? And that's the message we preach. And if you're here this morning and you have never surrendered to that message, you have never applied that message to your soul, I want to talk to you. There are others who want to talk to you. We want you to know that you know that you know that you are entering the kingdom of heaven when you walk out this morning. What if, what if you die today? Death is no respecter of persons. Your soul is hanging by the smallest thread, one breath away from death. Who is securing your soul? Is it you or is it Christ? May it be Christ. May it be Christ because anything else is gonna cut that thread and you're gonna fall straight to hell. Surrender to Christ this morning. I'd love to tell you how. Father, we thank you so much for your time this morning. We thank you for your truths. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that if there's one here this morning who has never come to the gospel of life, they have never known you as savior, they've never repented of their sins, I pray this morning would be the morning that they repent of their sins and come to you. Lord, my words have been feeble and But Lord, your word is truth. You have the words of life. And I pray you will implant them to the lives of your people this morning. Let's just sing one verse and one chorus. Lead me to Calvary. Let's stand and sing together.